Hello and welcome to On Geopolitics, the podcast that looks at geopolitics and historical context with myself, Ali Ansari, and my regular co-host, Suzanne Rain. Today, we're going to be looking at the construction of narratives and the narratives between particularly those leaders that seem to have a fairly sort of uh, clear enmity towards the West. And one of the striking things I think uh, you found, Suzanne, and certainly I've come across it as well, is this fact that there is a certain amount of synergy going across uh, some some unusual synergies, it has to be said, between different elements in terms of their ideological view of the West. That's right, Ali. Um, on the 30th of September this year, Vladimir Putin gave a 37-minute speech in which he explained the rationale for the Russian annexation of parts of Ukraine. And I read the speech because a very wise man once said to me, if you want to know what Vladimir Putin is going to do, you should listen to what he says he's going to do. So I read the speech because you need to understand yeah, your adversary. Absolutely. And all the way through, I thought, this is really familiar. I've read this before. I've heard this before. And I looked back at um, a letter to the American people that Osama bin Laden wrote in November 2002, so one year after 9-11, in which he explained essentially why he was fighting the West and what he wanted from the West. And it struck me, and I then did a piece of analysis, Ali, which we can talk about, that the themes contained in the two texts, which were written 20 years apart, um, there is there is a sort of clear flow of the arguments in both Vladimir Putin's speech and Osama bin Laden's letter to the American people. But the themes are also consistent all the way through. And um, they fit something which, in, in sort of counterterrorism terms, we had come to call the single narrative, which is essentially... Um, a means by which an argument is made and was has been made mm-hmm. most forcefully by Osama bin Laden over a long period of time, which essentially um, lists the grievances and justifies the courses of action in response to the grievances. And the clever thing that Osama bin Laden did was that he, he built the narrative such that every new thing that happened, you could just add it to the single narrative that already exists. So so you end up with this, in particular in Al-Qaeda's terms, you end up with this long list of bad things the West has done, which would be war against them or war against Muslims in Afghanistan, in Kashmir, in Bosnia, in Chechnya, in Somalia, in Iraq, in Algeria. So, and, and each new thing that happens... You just, just add it on. You just add it on and, and, it, and it forms a part of a, a bigger list. So there's a set of themes, Ali, which I propose that we should work through because I know that having thought about this, I know you've also looked at the similarities between what um, Vladimir Putin's saying and some of the messages that have come, come out, out of Tehran. Yeah, of absolutely. There are some extraordinary synergies actually there. So I thought I'm just going to give you the top lines of the sure. themes that I think, and then we could maybe discuss some of the themes in more detail or maybe bring it to life a little bit with some with some excerpts. The first theme is creating the sense that they're the entity that's being attacked. And of course, it's um, it's a fallacy. I mean, in Putin's case, it is very clearly a fallacy, but, but he can't justify his attack unless he says that he was attacked first. And Osama bin Laden, you know, the same, the there are always different ways of looking at everything in history, but but it's you have attacked us, you continue to attack us, and that is why we're attacking you back. There's always a big section that dwells on 
historical grievance and historical rectitude, which again, we can talk about in more detail. In both Putin's speech and Osama bin Laden's letters to the American people, there are specific references to placing military bases in their land or in their territory. And of course, Osama bin Laden, um, you know, furiously against American bases in the Middle East and in Saudi Arabia. Russia, obviously, it's the expansion of NATO, it's placing of bases in all sorts of countries who Russia considers to be its sphere of influence. Both of them, very curiously, and it'll be interesting to see what you think on, on the Iran side, they both talk about the dropping of atomic bombs in Japan in 1945 and how Again, America is consistently talking, saying that they are essentially, you know, the, the global policeman, but actually the only country actually to use nuclear weapons has been America. And um, we can talk about that in more detail. Um, then they attack countries which are allied to the West as collaborators or apostates or vassals. They describe how the West misuses international law. So cites international law as a reason that, that the West is in the right and then simply just rides roughshod over it. That leads on to a section about hypocrisy, which of course, everybody's a hypocrite. We all know, you know, if you've been a nation state for any length of time, you've probably done a number of things that, that are hypocritical in some form. And then you have a section in both of these texts, which focuses on the depravity of the West, and ends up referencing someone who will be familiar to you, Ali, Satan. And uh, and I say not, that not personally, <laughs> not personally, but anyway. Yeah, but, but I was I was thinking as I was doing, I was thinking who copyrighted the great Satan? Is that's right? Is that an is yeah. that was that an Iranian invention, or does it? Predates. Well, it seems to have been. It seems to become increasingly identified with Ayatollah Khomeini, doesn't mm. it? So I, I think it's very much identified. I, I, I think obviously the, the notion of the West as being uh, satanic, which it, which in a Muslim sense, of course, means as a sort of great tempter, this sort of uh, the, the the person that will lead you away from the straight path. That's basically what they're uh, uh, they're aiming at. And is it is as I've discovered really a sort of a variation of the theme of the great whore of Babylon that seemed to galvanize many Calvinists and others and and. and Protestant uh, Reformation Europe, so it's it's that sort of religious theme of, and I, I, you know, by the way, everything you've said, everything, all the themes you've said, I could uh, draw comparisons, very easy comparisons with with what comes out of Tehran and the uh, and religious elements there. I think there's a difference in emphasis in some places, and I think obviously um, what Iran and, and and obviously to that case, you know, Bin Laden in, in in terms of the Sunni variant and Afghanistan and, and the Saudi, I mean, what they're, they're doing is is they, you know, the, the language becomes highly uh, religious and uh, you know draws on on religious illusions, which I had thought I have to say that uh, Putin uh, wouldn't do. I thought he might take a somewhat more Marxist uh, or you know reading of it, even though he's obviously not a Marxist himself. By, by no, he's uh, not a Marxist. Um- no, and, and he, he, he certainly draws. He draws. He draws on some some common themes, though, doesn't he? About you know the capitalist West and this sort of thing. Yes, but it, but in the sense of um, colonial oppression and exploitation. So um, that's right. I'm just looking here at what he was saying on this. So both of them see mm-hmm. in 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 my reading of Osama bin Laden and Putin, they see the West as um, engaged in this long term process. Of exploitation and profiteering. So, so Bin Laden said, "You, 
you steal our wealth at paltry prices yeah. because of your international yeah. influence and military threats. This theft is indeed the biggest theft ever witnessed by mankind in the history of the world. And Putin, again, I mean, he he's talking about the gas here, but he says, it seems incredible, but it is a fact. By causing explosions on Nord Stream's international gas pipes, Mm. passing through the bottom of the Baltic Sea, they have actually embarked on the destruction of Europe's entire energy infrastructure. It is clear to everyone who stands to gain. So they're both kind of talking in this sense about exploitation of resources, but they're also then, they're linking that very clearly. And this is this is this hook, which is really difficult because it's pernicious with colonialism in a very emotive way. So Putin said some extraordinary things, and I think outrageous things, given given what Russia is doing, given Russia's That's imperial right. behaviour. Um, he says, instead of bringing democracy, they suppressed and exploited, and instead of giving freedom, they enslaved and oppressed. The unipolar world is inherently anti-democratic and unfree. It is false and hypocritical through and through. And to contrast that with someone be like, I should have done this, Ali, so to make you guess who said what. But, who said um, what? That would have yeah, been a fun right. game that we're not playing. Yeah. Um, Osama bin Laden said, the freedom and democracy that you call to is for yourselves and for the white race only. As for the rest of the world, you impose upon them your monstrous, destructive policies and governments, which you call the American friends. And then Putin comes back and he says, they don't want us to be free. They want us to be a colony. They don't want equal cooperation. They want to loot. They do not want to see us a free society, but a mass of soulless slaves. The West does not have any rights, moral rights, to weigh in or even utter a word about freedom of democracy. And Osama bin Laden, actually, he makes a very specific point about Algeria, because he said, you like, a, you love democracy, except in the case of Algeria, where we had democracy and they voted for the Islamists, and then you decided you didn't like that. And that, that, of course, again, Ali, I assume, is exactly what they would say in Iran, which is, um, we have democratic elections. Well, they're very good at, uh, you know, of, of highlighting what, you know, we would generally see as a hypocritical approach by the West, you know, so where the West does things, obviously, in its interests that don't necessarily live up to the ideals that the West promotes. So they're very good at that. What they're less good at is probably being self-aware about their own role in, in, in various things. And, and I think the Russia example is a much more stark one in many ways, although Iran, I think, runs them a close second, um, where, you know, Russia promotes an anti-imperial narrative without really recognizing the fact that Russia is you know, is an empire. I mean, you can't say that the Russian nation extends from, you know, uh, European Russia all the way to Siberia. I, I mean, this is this is a, an example of of a, a continental expansion that you know the Americans would be proud of. So it's not a it, it it's an interesting thing that they see themselves rather curiously as an oppressed nation. But the the, and the thing that's so interesting about the success of this as a proper as a as a communication tool. Yeah. Is that, of course, there is an element of truth in all of these things. Of course, of course, and, you draw on that. And yeah. you can completely draw on it. And Putin lists a number of countries who have been colonialised and exploited by the West. And that's very straightforward then, because he's speaking to the people of those countries, giving them a narrative which is essentially that he, Putin, Russia understands their problems, is on their side, and they therefore, you know, can look to him to defend them against the evil exploitative colonialising 
West, which is riddled with double standards and which says it's going to uphold the rule of law and, and doesn't. So this was what I think has been over the last 20 years is what's made countering Islamist extremism, countering the narrative of Osama bin Laden and of Daesh so difficult because at the heart of it, every bit of it has elements of truth in it. So the only way you can counter it is by contextualizing it or explaining it that they've missed out a whole other section of history where there's a different narrative to be told. And the West is they, not very good at doing that. Yeah, they're not very good at it because I mean what they're what the other side and and you know Putin, Harmony, you know, no doubt, you know, the, the, the bin Ladens of this world, they're very good at painting the world in primary colours. Yeah. And primary colours are, are those that people are willing. They're easy to digest, aren't they? I mean, that's. A, I was going to ask you a question, actually, another question, because one of the things that I presume uh, Iran and um, you know the Bin Ladens of this world share in common is actually an allusion to crusades. You know, the West yes. is on a crusade. Yes, but presumably Putin doesn't draw on that. Although I suddenly then wondered whether he sort of made references to the Teutons and this sort of thing, and, and whether the, the Russians also felt themselves to be subjected to, to Western crusades. But I, I mean, I haven't seen anything in Putin's language to reflect that per se. But so uh, not in I don't this, know if you have. In this speech, not. But there was at the same time of this, then they had the rally and the, um, I can't remember his name, one of the other guys stood up and he said, this is a holy war. And and that was... Oh, uh, so, is that Medvedev possibly? No, yeah, it wasn't Medvedev. Be, uh, um, but that use of um, holy war as a language, as a language is of course, is of course yeah, absolutely a parallel. And that that was the first time. I'm, I'm sure others will say they've they've heard it. And I think I think essentially extreme Russian nationalists and that link with the Russian Church, the Orthodox Church. I think there is there a language which you could say is not dissimilar from the purest Islamist narratives about jihad. I I think one of the things looking at the roots of this because because mm. where did the single narrative come from and you can explain it in kind of salafi islamist but you can track it back through to essentially anti-colonial movements at the beginning yeah. of the 20th century particularly in egypt with the um and where the word is evolution of the Muslim Brotherhood, which was founded in That's 1928 right. by Hassan al Banna, as a response to British colonial occupation of Egypt. And what they felt was uh, the negative effects of westernization of Egyptian culture and the decline of Islam in, in public life. So, so you had this kind of blend of deep social inequalities and a resentment against Western culture that, that created this this movement of, of identity politics in a way, which which became the Muslim Brotherhood uh, in massively shortcutting the whole thing. And then one of the main sort of one of the main thinkers that influenced Salman bin Laden was Saeed Qutb, who was a leading member of the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood. And particularly he was born in 1906 and died in 1966. So he was particularly active in, in the 40s and 50s. And there was this kind of seminal moment, uh, or moments longer, mm. um, where he was, from 1948 to 1950, he was sent by the Egyptian Ministry of Education to study in America. And he was shocked by what he saw uh, in the same way that Osama bin Laden and Vladimir Putin talk about the sin and depravity, which we could go into more detail on. But Kutub described the endless means of satisfying animalistic desires, pleasures, and awful sins. He was 
horrified by jazz music. And he went back to Egypt and published The America I Have Seen, which described the US as, as a primitive civilization with just a, a land of temptation and, and materialism. And mm. and he he played up this word jahiliya, which means kind mm. of ignorance or barbarism. That's right. And he wrote yeah. his seminal work, Milestones, arguing that a vanguard must set out marching through the vast ocean of jahiliya. So that that sense there of the need for purification against the depraved West, that's got a long backstory to it. And again, I'm looking at you, Ali, thinking, how does that relate to the revolution in Iran in 1979, mm -hmm. does it? It does. I mean, it, it, it does in the sense that, you know, you get, I mean, obviously, you know, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini sums it up all rather nicely in the phrase Great Satan. So basically he describes the West as this morally bankrupt place, which which actually does, I mean, in fact, in one of his speeches, one of his early speeches, not his speeches, I'd say his lectures when he was talking about Islamic government, he, and this is in the 1970s, so this is early 1970s, 1970-71, I think. And, you know, he talks there, he says, you know, uh, we've been facing this uh, assault from the West, you know, this sort of attack, obviously, as you say, they're on the defensive for 300 years. But it's not that necessarily they wanted to come and sort of like um, uh, project Christianity or make us believe in something else because they don't believe in anything. You know, it's this sort of idea that they're just completely vacuous materialists, uh, corrupt, morally corrupt. And, and their function really is to corrupt uh, the Muslim society. So it's, it's, it's quite interesting in the sense it's not just the policies of the West. It's in fact the very existence of the West is anathema. And I think that's something that uh, people don't normally appreciate because it, it's not something that it's easy to engage with. I mean, in, in some senses, I remember people saying that bin Laden's main argument was that he wanted the West out of you know, the Middle East and had you were you able to sort of, uh, in some ways, there, there was an area where you could, I mean, I, I don't know if you could you sort of meet halfway, if you will, but in actual fact, many of these sort of thinkers are not compromising at all on this element. I mean, they just see the West as something that's uh, rotten to the core um, and, frankly, in many ways shouldn't exist. So that that doesn't leave a huge amount of room for manoeuvre, and they do push that. I mean, they do push that quite heavily, and you see it in the more radical interpretations. I mean, it's not everyone, certainly not everyone in Iran, uh, but you do see it in the more hardline elements, and you do see it coming up in the speeches of various of, of elements of the leadership. So that, that that's very powerful, and I I think I you know I sort of got this element of it from some of Putin's recent speeches yeah. as well, which I thought was quite striking actually. I mean I, you know, this is a country in a sense the the Russian history is quite interesting for its its dynamic relationship with the West and its 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 adoption of many Western values certainly in the eighteenth yes. and nineteenth centuries. Yes, so that so the, and then they've abandoned it. I mean they they turned their back on it or something. I don't know. Well, I'm not sure the extent to which they actually have. But should I do? Uh, yeah, should true. I do a compare and contrast, Ali? So now this is sure. This is that you've got to guess which is Putin and which is Osama bin Laden. Okay. Um, example number one. Let me repeat that the dictatorship of the Western elites targets all societies, including the citizens of Western countries themselves. This complete renunciation of what it means to be human, the overthrow of faith and traditional values, and the suppression of freedom are coming to resemble a religion in reverse, pure Satanism. That's example number one. And okay. example number two asks the Americans to stop your oppression, lies, immorality, and debauchery that is spread among you because you are a nation that permits acts of immorality and you consider them to be pillars of personal freedom. 
You've continued to sink down this abyss from level to level until incest has spread amongst you in the face of which neither your sense of honour nor your laws object. So I'm going to guess that the first one, because of its reference to Satan, is Bin Laden. Ah! No! And I'm wrong! And I'm wrong! <laughs> <laughs> but I did that deliberately. Because I know, but it's very... <laughs> That's the point. I mean, they're 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 it's fascinating. They're actually, so see that Putin similar. would use such language. Yeah. Well, they both they both end up with Satan, but Putin gets there first in this. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Putin, he he says, you know, Osama bin Laden says, "Go ahead and boast to the nations of man that you brought them AIDS as a satanic American invention." So he's linking Satan with with AIDS, which was in two thousand and two, the thing that everyone was talking about. Um, Putin is talking about gender reassignment surgery in the same to do we want our schools to impose on our children from the earliest days in school perversions that lead to degradation and extinction do we want to drum into their heads the ideas that certain other genders exist along with women and men and to offer them gender reassignment surgery so again so what they're both doing very cleverly is picking on the thing that is preoccupying the west at this moment and linking mm-hmm. it to, in both cases, unfortunately, Satanism, which, again, that that question that you were saying about um, does Putin have a religious angle to this? You know, you can't talk about Satan and not be invoking religion. No, absolutely. No, it's. I mean, it's really, it's quite shocking. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's striking how he's brought into that because in some ways, he sounds even more unreasonable if such a thing is possible um, than some of the religious, you know, some of the religious, you know, I can sort of understand where some of the, you know, religious dialogue is coming because you know their background, you know their education. But the idea that Putin with no such um, religious uh, context, I suppose, for a lot of the stuff that he's saying, he's obviously just simply imbued or, or borrowed this language from elsewhere. I mean, presumably he's being fed this also by what the the Russian Orthodox Church or the hierarchy of the Russian Orthodox Church? I don't know. I mean, it's a well. I think so. I mean, there's a there's a question we can't answer about whether he mm. believes this himself or whether he's using this to mobilise people. I mean, Osama bin Laden both believed it himself and knew that it was the that this whole narrative together, the single narrative, was a very clever means to reach into populations and mobilise them. And that is both, actually, it's worth noting, it reaches to to your followers, but it also, mm-hmm. and this is where the West is very vulnerable, because it reaches into marginalised communities, either within Western countries or allies, that, you know, countries who the West thinks would be allied to them, but who have... So, so for example, I'm wondering whether... Quite a lot of Putin's speech is directed at parts of Africa where the narratives about colonialism and exploitation will feed an already existing grievance, and then and yeah, then these absolutely. ideas about um, you know Western licentiousness and and you're thinking there are there are a number of places in Africa where um, traditional Christianity is very strong or Islam is very strong, and therefore this yeah, idea yeah. of um, the West as being a place where everything is sin and and um, you know deviance is something that is quite easy to to sort of fit into their narrative. So the the anti the anti gay narratives of a number of African countries, which is obviously mirrored with anti gay narratives in Russia in the Russian nationalist movements. So 
there are kind of threads that that he can pull on, which help cement a, a much broader sort of sense of we're in this together, we're in this collectively. Don't worry, you know, you don't have extreme views. Actually, these views are perfectly reasonable. They're the ones that we share as well. And the problem for the West is it doesn't have a counter narrative except to say, well, sin and depravity is quite fun, actually, and we do like democracy. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, again, Ali, it's really helpful to have you because obviously the Iranians have been using these arguments for the last 40 years. And yet we've now got people on the streets in Tehran burning their headscarves. And- well, this is the thing. I mean, this is the thing. And I think you hit the nail on the head there, actually, is that all this rhetoric, I mean, I I wrote somewhere recently, I said it must be really galling for the authorities in Iran that young girls in in Iran are burning their headscarves and not the American flag. I mean, you know, after 43 years, what are they doing? They're actually challenging that narrative. You know, so the response of the regime has been automatically, and and one of the things we haven't talked about actually yet is the notion of the hidden hand. I mean, the hidden hand is everyone. It tends to be, you know, I I know there are distinctions there because whereas Khamenei will talk endlessly about the Zionists and so on and so forth, I I know Putin is a little bit more shy about going down that route. But his, um, uh, you know, this notion that... um, you know, everything is being driven, that the discontent on the streets of Tehran is being driven by sort of an American and Israeli sort of conspiracy is clearly not one that is being bought by many of the demonstrators, that, you know, the people themselves. They don't suddenly think that, oh, you know, what we're doing is, you know, playing into the hands of foreigners. In fact, what they're doing and what they're calling out for, which is quite interesting, is, you know, they're championing those very values of, you know, civil and human rights which they identify with the West. And so therefore, you know, appeal to the West for that support. And it's a very interesting, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a very interesting situation to be in, in, in that sense, that they've completely rejected a narrative that many of these, you know, these younger demonstrators, of course, have known nothing else but this sort of rhetoric coming out of their government, you know. And yet, um, just as we're connected in this sort of social media cocoon, you know, where people reinforce their conspiracy theories in this sort of paranoid culture. It also actually allows people to break out of that. You know, uh, presumably 50, well, not even 50 years ago, maybe 20, 30 years ago, it'd be quite easy for a government to retain, unless you're North Korea, of course, in which case, you, you know, you shut everything down. But I mean, you know, most countries certainly now would find it much more difficult to seal off, you know, to seal off a population from outside views. So that question of a, a hidden hand, Ali, is really mm. interesting because obviously it's there all the way through with Osama bin Laden where it's an alliance of the Americans and the Jews, the Zionists, who are behind everything in their minds that is wrong with the world and, and a series of injustices and oppressions. Um Putin obviously also sees a hidden hand behind everything that is difficult for him. And that question of what they call the colour revolution, so the expressions of democratic intent from those countries on the periphery of the Russian empire, mm-hmm. who and, and Ukraine is the best example, but also you had lots of um, unrest in Belarus last year, very strong Belarusian opposition. So all of that is is seen as being essentially... Western mischief making at best and and active Western intervention at worst. The other thing that that made me think of when you talked about the hidden hand is of course the role of those states which are uh, not allies but somehow allies of the West and and both Putin and Osama bin Laden directly focus on on them 
speaking to them. So Putin said, under your supervision, consent and orders, the governments of our countries which act as your agents attack us on a daily basis. In certain countries, the ruling elites voluntarily agree to do this, voluntarily agree to become vassals, and others are bribed or intimidated. So, of course, he's he's undermining those countries who are choosing to support, in this case, Ukraine, the West, by saying to their people, mm. your leader is a vassal. They're either corrupt, they've been bribed, but they're being intimidated. But he's also saying something else, isn't he? he? He's also saying the elites have been, in some cases, yeah. the elites have been co-opted. So he, he's, he's basically talking about a fifth column. And that's also part of this sort of hidden hand narrative. So in the recent demonstrations, for instance, Khamenei has said that these people demonstrating, they're not real Iranians. You know, they're not real ones. They're being manipulated. Sometimes, you know, what they'll do is they'll distinguish between those who've been sort of like unconsciously manipulated and those are conscious and those who are consciously supportive but you're basically othering so the enemy within becomes very very clear mm-hmm. and you know they designate and in in iran of course and presumably in other parts of the muslim world where this thing sort of goes on you're not just simply othering your enemies that your enemies become heretical they're, they're beyond the pale and therefore they, they're, they're not subjected to any of the normal uh, rules shall we say uh, within an islamic society even um and that's that's quite that's, quite interesting. I mean, and the fact that Putin is also saying because I I remember him saying I think where was it back in May or whatever it was, he said that you know what they do is they sort of like uh, I don't know they, they they sort of hollow out they hollow out real Russians real Russians are basically hollowed out and make sort of like waxwork effigies of the West or something. I mean it was, it was a very bizarre language, but almost uh, a carbon copy of the sort of stuff you would hear in in Tehran. Yes, and indeed coming back to Osama bin Laden. Uh, He's always accused, particularly Middle Eastern governments and their yeah. rulers, of collaboration with the West and American um, Islam. Well, Abu Bakr Baghdadi, who is the leader of Daesh, Islamic State in Iraq and Levant, sorry, yeah. yes, um, he in one of in edition of Darbic magazine, which was the Daesh kind of glossy magazine, he subscription, did a big subscription subscription service only. Yeah. <laughs> subscribe at your own risk, I would argue. Um, <laughs> but they did it. They did a big glossy section uh, with you know a whole page photograph of the flagpole at Aqaba in Jordan, saying mm-hmm. this is the flag of an apostate regime. This flag wow. was created wow. by. Um, the evil colonialising West, as indeed were the flags of most of the countries in the Middle East. Um, and and of course, again, there is truth in that. The flags of the Arab revolt, which led to mm. um, you know, the beginnings of the designs of, of flags which are still used uh, by countries. So, so these are apostate regimes. So exactly what you're saying is it's so far beyond the pale because of course your duty as as a devout jihadist is mm. is to fight the apostates because they deserve to be destroyed so by saying any country which is an ally of america you know the their ruler is an apostate that puts them top of of the hit list and and again it's it's a it is exactly it's an exploitation of grievance politics very profoundly to mobilize those people who are angry about something and create this common cause. So I do think that that the way that Putin's doing this is a really alarming development because it's it's essentially switching from being kind I of agree. rational actor being part of a Western discourse to being 
as we all know, not completely rational actor, who is using these very dangerous othering narratives. And why I'm saying that, Ali, is because we were also doing an our research for this. I looked up speeches by a lot of other uh, anti-Western leaders or perceived to be anti-Western leaders, just to see how many of them followed the pattern. And right. uh, one person who I could, and others may disagree, but the person who I thought wasn't following this pattern very markedly was President Xi of China, right. who is still giving calm, rational speeches, which yeah. essentially, I mean, he's basically saying, I am challenging the unipolar world. It can't only be America who sets all the laws and regulates and polices. But the language that he's using is language that would be familiar to those of us in the West who talk about geopolitics. So he he gave a speech at the BRICS summit. So that's um, Brazil, India, China, and Russia, and South Africa. Uh, hosted in Beijing on the 22nd of June this year, where he spoke about um, a new type of international relations based on um, mutual respect, fairness, justice, win-win cooperation, um, an end to hegemony, group politics and block confrontation and bringing on peace and security. So that's, that's language, even if he has an underlying subtext, that's basically language that you can't disagree with. And that stood out for me as we're comparing that with the kind of things that that Putin is saying. Very different messaging. One of the things that we were going to probably address also is this fact that they use, um, I think they all do this, uh, talk about the United States as uh, the real um, abuser of human rights in a sense because of its use of atomic weapons. Yes, do you want well, me to read you some that, sections? So, yes, do. Well, I mean, exactly for the point you're making, really, because, again, the unhelpful fact for America is it's true. But they <laughs> It's true. They but the did. context. Um, there is a context, is there not? Yes. So bin Laden says, that which you are singled out for in the history of mankind is that you have used your force to destroy mankind more than any other nation in history not to defend principles and values, but to hasten to secure your interests and profits. You dropped a nuclear bomb on Japan, even though Japan was ready to negotiate an end to the war. So again, there can be, you know, acres of historical works written on what would have happened if America hadn't dropped a nuclear or nuclear bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But the point is that Osama bin Laden deals with it in one sentence and says, you didn't have to do this, but you did it out of whatever it was that you felt a desire to punish and destroy. And then Putin, almost exactly the same sort of words even, um, he says, the United States is the only country in the world that has used nuclear weapons twice, destroying the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, and then he he goes on to say, and they created they created a precedent. That's his um, evil subtext. Um, and then he goes on to talk about um, the United States left a deep scar in the memory of the people of Korea and Vietnam with their carpet bombings and the use of napalm and chemical weapons. And recall that during World War II, the United States and Britain reduced Dresden, Hamburg, Cologne, and many other German cities to rubble without the least military necessity. So again, that the two things are being equated here, and again, ominous. I mean, do you think 
I mean, I, just a question. I mean, I, I suppose we'd never know, but I wonder whether you know this was ghostwritten for him by someone. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it seems quite a detailed critique of uh, <laughs> Western policy during the Second World War, um, and one that wouldn't be unfamiliar to people who do these, you know, have these discussions about you know the the, the sort of the the uh, bombing of Dresden and others. Um, but it's you know I've never seen it quite so uh, well articulated, shall we say, in in the in the hands of Iranian leaders. There is a lot of stuff about how Japan and Germany, I mean Nazi Germany in this case, uh, were very badly mistreated, you know, during the war and its aftermath. You know, this sort of idea that goes down very uncomfortably with obviously German politics. That's today. interesting. So I didn't realise that. So yeah. so the Iranian narrative is that it is is defending. Germany against yes, well, because because I mean, of course, the Iranian twist, of course, is they sort of have this fanciful notion that you know we're all Aryans, so they so so Iranian politicians will go out to Germans and sort of say, you know, we Aryans need to stick together, much to the collective embarrassment of the German politicians who sort of say, well, you know, not really. Um, but they 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 you know the, the, there are other I suppose there are other strings to the the conspiratorial bow in this case, which obviously the Russians and the you know the others wouldn't use. But the Iranians do use that occasionally, and then they do sort of say that the post-war settlement is an unjust settlement because the Germans were, were unfairly, in a sense, uh, blamed or criticised, which is, you know, well, I mean, bizarre, obviously, but, I mean, it's it's something that they, they, they also um, uh, argue when they're trying to say that the, the, the post-war global settlement is an unjust one. I think all this does, really, is underline the central point, which is that if we think that the narrative of the West is confused and hypocritical, yes. <laughs> it is also the case that this narrative is confused and hypocritical because I now I'm reading this and I'm thinking, what side does Putin want Russia to have been on in the I Second know. World War? Because it's so you know, who was Nazis and who isn't Nazis is getting harder and harder to distinguish. And in this case, the bombing of German cities by the United States and Britain. Uh, is being held up as being a terrible thing, but I leave it there. I leave it for the listener to decide what they make of that, because that's the point here, Ali. This is just a conversation to pull out. Some yes, absolutely, and highlight them. Can and they can highlight them. They can research it more. I mean, I I think it is it is really important to read what they say and to think about it. The other thing that I think is important is you know. There's something that we in the West should draw from all of this in terms of an understanding of how we are perceived. And you need to understand the accusations that are being made at you before you can work out what it is you can do about them. And at the moment, I think this this really clever use of grievance politics is creating division, obviously, between nation states, which is coming out really clearly in the UN Security Council, or the, all the UN votes, but also it's creating divisions within societies because it's no secret that Russia has been trying in many different mm. ways over the last 10 years, particularly, to create unrest within Western societies through the manipulation of social media. Um, and Just that's also sowing doubt, isn't it? Sowing doubt. Exactly. And division and turning one side against each other. Um, so, so that's... That's at the heart of this as well. So all those bot factories, wherever they are, sitting in Russia, <laughs> creating anti-vaxxer messages. All those followers that I have, yeah. 
all those mm. followers that that I've got that aren't real. Um, <laughs> I'm sure all of yours are real, Ali. But but all of that kind of comes together with speeches like this, which which then pick all this stuff up again and repeat the grievances. And because we're the West and we're depraved and um, neurotic and hypocritical, we don't actually have a counter narrative that is anywhere near as compelling to those people who have the grievances. I think that's... Well, I don't think... I mean, I I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think we've, on the one hand, been quite dismissive of it. You know, we sort of said, we sort of treat it with a sort of contempt. Uh, But I I think if recent events and uh, and the war in Ukraine and the way that Russia, in some ways, has been able to galvanise a certain amount of support in the developing world, certainly. Um, Not just, actually, the developing world, to be honest. Um, Sort of indicates that you do need to, first of all, understand it engage with it and challenge it don't you i mean and and uh, we've actually probably been quite poor at that um partly because you know every time you know we say so you know what happens is putin or Khamenei says ah but we can find someone in the west who agrees with us <laughs> and therefore they sort of like use that and sort of say you know there you are we, we can validate our position so i think it's something um well i think i'm sure it's something we will come back to i i, I suppose at some time in the future but it's been uh, really interesting to sort of just flag up some of these um some of these synergies and 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 the single narrative as you called it so that that that's the uh, that's the term that's used is it that's the term that has been used um to describe essentially the 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 radicalizing narrative that is used by al qaeda and its subsequent um organizations and yeah i mean the, you could argue the single narrative is is multiplying quite Rapidly, through through through, so. through the medium of so, of social media, it's accelerating <laughs> around the world, as they say. Um, yeah. So, Ali, that's it from us for today, isn't it? Is. It is. I'm hoping that next time we're going to be joined by Professor Bill Hurst Wonderful. to talk through the um, the Chinese China, yeah. Congress, um, which is going to happen, I think, very soon. It'll be interesting to see if and they be- what they say in that Congress. Yeah. It will actually. So we'll we'll look for what we have to do now is look for threads from this um, from this narrative in everything yeah. without becoming more paranoid and destabilized ourselves. So on that note, Ali, I'm going to say goodbye to you and, and goodbye um, from me. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Bye. Bye.